So, tell me what happened. I was there. They crucified him. I can show you where they buried him. What difference does it make at this point? I understand. But just start from the beginning. Well, it was amazing. A few years back, a guy shows up making all kinds of crazy claims. He spent most of his time at the river. That's where I would go to listen. Then one afternoon, he just stops. Mid-sentence points and says, Look. So we all looked. Look, he said. The Lamb of God. <laughs> just what we all needed, right? A lamb? That's the first time I saw him. The lamb, that is. Jesus. You were with Jesus as well. I was, for three years, right up until, well, yesterday. It was amazing, he was amazing. And the crowds, oh, I've never seen so many people in one place. And it was everywhere, everywhere we went, more crowds. They came to listen, they came to watch. Some came to criticize others to be healed and he touched he touched untouchable people and and they were healed I'm not sure I understand he was healing people but you seem offended he told a man his sins were forgiven people are so naive only God can forgive sin his followers made mockery of the law, and he never lifted a finger to stop them. He would defend them. He would defend them and criticize us. Us! I was there the day he claimed to be greater than the temple. Then the rumors started. Rumors that he would actually destroy the temple. And the ignorant peasants he surrounded himself with believed him. Worse than peasants. Sinners. Tax gatherers. Women. He told me about me. The part of me that... that shames me. But I didn't feel shame that afternoon. Before that day, I can't remember when I haven't felt shame. But that day... That day I felt... Alive. They knew we were coming. Now by that time, they knew every move we made. We didn't know who to trust. But that, that didn't concern him. So, off we went into the jaws of the lion. Jerusalem. And the whole world was waiting for us. They lined the streets. The sound of their shouts was deafening. And I'll admit, it, it, it went to our heads. But 
not him. He seemed preoccupied. I, I would say worried, but I'm not sure that he ever worried. And then things got strange. He made Passover all about him. You know, he, he said the bread was his body and, and the wine was his blood. And we were used to that kind of thing, but, but this seemed more unusual than normal, even for him. Then he announced a new covenant. We had no idea what that meant. And then he gave us a new command. And we, we certainly didn't need any more of those. So what was the problem? The problem? Jesus was the problem. The crowds loved him. The crowds flocked to him. And the crowds not only believed him, they were beginning to believe in him. That was a problem. So, we took care of it. You mean, you killed him? No, Rome killed him. Lucky for us, it was one of his own that led us to him. And once we had him, well, all the other peasants scattered, as we suspected they would. But let's be clear, we did not kill him. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I should have made him their king. I saw more courage, more integrity in those eyes in the eyes of any of their high priests. They were jealous. Ask my wife. I tried to save him. But as soon as I mentioned king, we have no king but Caesar, they chanted. And in that moment, I realized I had no choice. And then, I crucified their king. But for the record, they are responsible. Not me. Doesn't matter now. What matters now is that Passover is over. Things will settle down now. So, what do you do now? We hide. We wait. Didn't he say he'd be back? Yeah, yeah, he, uh... He said a lot of things. More than you have room to write. So, do you think he'll be back? Back? I don't know. I don't think so. No. We just wouldn't think so either. We wouldn't have thought so because we would expect Jesus to do exactly what deceased people do. It's why in the Gospels, after the crucifixion, we don't find Anyone outside Jesus' tomb, counting down backwards from ten. Ten, nine, eight, 
seven, cue the sun, six, five, four, three, two. There's no one outside the tomb because they expected Jesus to stay dead. And so they did exactly what anyone would do who would expect Jesus to do what all deceased people do. So in the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to follow, in chapter 16, the text tells us that when the Sabbath was over, and they were free then to come out and do work, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and a group of women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, actually went and bought spices so they might anoint or re-embalm Jesus' body. And the reason they had to go purchase these is they had not purchased them ahead of time because the events all happened so quickly. Thursday night, he's arrested late at night. Friday morning, they wake up and hear that Jesus has been arrested. And by Friday evening, Jesus is dead and buried. And this is unimaginable. It all happened so quickly, and by the time they found out, events were happening quickly, and so much so there was no way for them to even catch up emotionally. They couldn't process it. Did they believe like all of Jesus' followers believed? They believed that he was a teacher and a good teacher. They believed that he was a miracle worker sent from God. They had hoped he was the Messiah, but clearly they were wrong because God would not allow his Messiah to be crucified. And they watched him die, and then they followed Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who probably paid Pilate to get Jesus' body. And they followed along in absolute shock that all of these events had taken place, again I say, so quickly, it just couldn't have happened. Jesus came to Jerusalem. Everybody expected for him to proclaim himself the Messiah. And now they're following Nicodemus, part of the Sanhedrin, that's a tribunal of rabbis, and Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man who was also part of the Sanhedrin. And they're following these two gentlemen and their slaves to a tomb they've never been to before. And they watched them put Jesus' body in there. And they watch these two men hurriedly embalm his body, and they're just in shock. Does this really happen? And they spend the next couple of nights with their heads spinning. But after Passover, they have to do something. So they decide they're going to go back, and perhaps they can get inside that tomb and spend the time they need to emotionally to catch up with the events of the past couple days. Everything had happened so quickly, and everything was compressed in such a short period of time. So let's keep reading in Mark 16, because verse 2 says, They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? Because they had seen that huge stone being put in place. Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb, they wondered. But when they looked up and when they arrived at the place where Jesus had been buried, they saw that that huge stone, which was very, very large, had been rolled away. And then another gospel writer and historian, none other than Luke, who thoroughly investigated everybody and everything that was a part of this entire story, said that they went inside the tomb and they found it empty. 
And here's the thing you need to know, especially if you used to be a church person and heard this stuff before and kind of just rolled over you, or maybe you used to consider yourself a Christian, or perhaps this is the time of year where you go to church with family or your grandparents because it's just kind of the thing to do. Perhaps part of the story you never heard as a child, assuming that you grew up hearing the story, is that when Jesus' closest followers peered into the empty tomb, not one single, not one, single one of them assumed a resurrection had taken place. When Mary and the group of women peered into that empty tomb, they expected to see a dead body. When they didn't see the body of Jesus in the tomb, they assumed exactly what you and I would assume, especially given the circumstances of his death. They assumed someone had stolen the body. And the text tells us that they ran back into the city to find the disciples who, by the way, were hiding. And here's what they said. We find this in the Gospel of John over in chapter 20 and verse 2. They said, whoever, and, and by the way, whoever they are, we still use that today. They say, they say, they said, they, and I've often asked people and never gotten an answer, who exactly is they? And the women came back and they said, they, whoever they are, because we don't know who they are, they, somebody, has taken the Lord out of the tomb. Someone has gone into that tomb, and they've taken his body, and we don't know where they've put him, and worse, we don't even know who they are. And Luke says the disciples were so skeptical, and the women were frantic, they were so emotional. You can imagine, maybe you can't. And Luke tells us in his gospel, chapter 24, verse 11, that they did not even believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So here's something that happens that perhaps you maybe have in common with those first century friends of Jesus. If you're someone who would acknowledge that Jesus was an historical figure, and almost Almost everybody does now. Once upon a time, there were some scholars who doubted that there ever was an historical Jesus. And that, that kind of thing kind of, has kind of come and gone. And it's more or less now accepted by, by the general uh, populace. Everybody acknowledges Jesus was at, the very, was at the very least an historical person. And if you're one of the people who would believe that certainly he said some good things and perhaps even part of his life or his lifestyle was something that we should emulate, but you just think the resurrection part is a bit of nonsense. Let me just tell you, don't feel ashamed. You're in good company. Jesus' best friends felt the same way. And on that morning, it was discovered that his body was absent. The body was gone. Wow. Not one of them assumed a resurrection had taken place. They assumed what everybody would assume because they assumed that Jesus was dead and he would stay dead. But Peter and another one of the disciples couldn't just sit there because the women insisted the body is gone, the body is gone, the body is gone. Do you people hear us? They're not going to go as a group because they feared they would be arrested. So Peter and John left the room and they went to investigate and look for themselves. 
And the text says that Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen, the strips of linen that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had used to begin the embalming process and to wrap the body of Jesus, as was the custom, lying by themselves, those uh, strips of linen. And he went away, not shouting, Jesus is alive, there's been a miracle. He went away wondering to himself, "Um, um, uh, uh, what in the world has, has just happened? What in the world has taken place? And this is one of the most important parts of this whole narrative, that the men and women who were closest to the action and the writers of the New Testament accounts actually document their skepticism and the unbelief of the very people who would be the spokesmen and the spokeswomen of this brand new movement that was about to begin. Don't ever forget this. I plead with you. They documented their own disbelief. These were not superstitious people. These were men and women who had now given up all hope. There was no dream now left to keep alive. There was no movement that they had intention of keeping alive and moving forward. And looking at John chapter 20 and verse 19, the text says, On the evening of the first day of the week, so that'd be the very evening that they discovered Jesus' body was missing, they discovered that in the morning, on the evening of that very first day of the week, when the disciples were together, so they'd all come back in together. Look at this. They acknowledge this. They're not hiding these facts. They're not revising history. The disciples were together This always intrigued me, the next words, with the doors locked. (laughs) Why? Because they were afraid. They were afraid. The Bible says, for fear of the Jewish leaders. So they took Jesus, and they're going to come for us next. Pilate gave them permission to take the leader, and certainly it's going to be open season on all his followers. No wonder they were afraid. So the very evening after the morning that Jesus' tomb is discovered empty and it's discovered that the body is missing, again, they're not running through the streets saying, there's been a miracle, there's been a miracle, there's been a miracle. They're hiding. Just like they've been hiding the previous two evenings. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? The text goes on to tell us the next thing that happens. Jesus pays them a visit. And they responded the same way you would respond. And the same way I would respond if someone we had seen die and buried showed up in the room with us. Luke 24, verses 37 and 8. They were startled. I would say that's an understatement. They were startled and they were frightened, thinking they'd just seen a ghost. And he said to them, and I think he probably had the biggest grin imaginable on his face, because Jesus played with them all the time. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Over and over again in their times together, whenever there was something happening that caused the disciples to be afraid, and it seemed like that was often, he would always look at them and kind of smile 
and say, why are you afraid? You might remember that one time they were all in a boat and Jesus was taking a nap and a squall came up and now they're not in a squall, they're in a storm and the boat's filling up with water and it's about to sink and they wake him up and he looks at them and smiles and says, what's going on? Why are you afraid? And they respond, because this boat is sinking. That's why we're afraid. And he says, yes, I know the boat is sinking. We may all drown, but why are you afraid? Why are you worried? What happened to your faith? That was a test. So Jesus shows up now in a room with men and and most likely some women. They'd seen him crucified. They'd seen him die. They saw him being buried. And the text says the 11 and those with them most likely men and women who had been in that inner circle with Jesus, men and women who knew where his body had been placed, men and women who assumed that very evening that someone had taken the body. Luke 24, verse 44, and he says to them, this is what I told you about when I was with you. You shouldn't be surprised. Didn't you listen? Weren't you listening? And the answer was no. They were not listening. Any time Jesus ever gave them bad news about himself, they just checked out. They didn't know how to respond, so they didn't. Because surely this is exaggeration. Oh, I may have heard him say that, but that's really exaggeration. It must be a figure of speech, because he is our Messiah, the promised one sent from God to save us from our oppressors, and bad things can happen to the Messiah of God. Verse 44 of Luke, 20, of Luke 24 says, This is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's how they described their Bible at that time. What was it? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. They didn't have the Bible like you have. Very few of them had Bible apps like you have this morning. We just talk so glibly about the Bible. We just talk so glibly about Easter. I've had so many people this morning say, Happy Easter. I cannot get that in my head. I don't know. And I said to so many people this morning, He's alive. And they gave me that look and they didn't know what to say. And they're like, Good morning. You know why I said that? Because He's alive. And every day for a born again believer is Easter. Because He's going to be alive tomorrow, too. And next Sunday, too. And a year from now, too. And for all of eternity, too. He's alive. They didn't have a Bible. They had sacred scriptures. What did they have? They had the law of Moses. They had the prophets. And they had the Psalms. And this is what they call their sacred scripture. And Jesus said, I told you all this. This was foretold. This was talked about in the sacred scriptures. I tried to connect the dots for you. I tried for you to be able to put it all together. Don't you remember? (laughs) And then go to verse 46 in that same passage. Uh, I said that the Messiah, like the sacred scripture says, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning right here in, and where was he when, he's, when he said that? He was sitting in Jerusalem. And then he looks them in the eye and he says something so extraordinarily important, something that would ultimately change their lives, something that would result in us. Actually, it's why you and I are here gathered and people are gathered likewise all over the world on this, 
occasion today. He looked at them and he said in verse uh, 48, and you, gentlemen, ladies, you are witnesses of these things. And they certainly were. Oh my. They were witnesses to the event that changed the world. They were witnesses to the event that launched the church. The resurrection of Jesus. It's the resurrection of Jesus that created Christianity. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gave birth to the church. Uh, the church didn't create the story of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus launched the church and created our faith. Before the resurrection, there, there were no Christians. After Jesus was crucified, there were no believers. After he was crucified, everybody gave up hope. Nobody was going to launch a movement simply in Jesus' name. Nobody was going to keep the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the prodigal son in circulation. Nobody's going to just keep his teaching alive just for everyone to listen. No, Jesus claimed too much about himself. They were ready to let all of that die. If it was possible for him to be arrested and crucified, then he was not who he claimed that he was. The resurrection changed all that. So think of this. That Peter and Andrew and James and John and Mary all admitted what nobody was expecting. Nobody. Because like Dad said, everyone expected Jesus to stay dead. Now if you're new to... Uh, to our church, or maybe you're new to our podcast, or you're new to this group of believers, there's something very important you should know about us. The reason we believe that Jesus rose from the dead is their testimony. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead because eyewitnesses have told us so. We believe because Matthew, who was an eyewitness, documented his experience with Jesus. We believe because Mark, who spent time with Jesus, who spent time with Peter, and he got Peter's account, who spent time with Jesus, and he believed that Jesus rose from the dead because he saw it with his own eyes. We believe because Luke, who came along later and thoroughly investigated these events and talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses, as many as possible, and put together an account. We believe because John, who was like an eyewitness, I mean, he was there and he put together an account of Jesus' life. We believe because Peter believed that Jesus rose from the dead and later on wrote letters to, the, to some churches to say so. We believe because James, the brother of Jesus, don't go by that too quickly. James, the brother of Jesus, who shows up later in the story and declares that his brother is his Lord, what would it take for you to declare that your brother is your Lord? Right? Okay, yeah, exactly. More than a few card tricks, probably. More than an occasional miracle, you know? When James met his... This is why James shows up later in the story. And when James met his resurrected brother, he declared that his brother was his Lord. And later, and he would say least, the Apostle Paul believed that Jesus rose from the dead because Jesus appeared to him. Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So it's not enough to say, I don't believe the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, and I'm just not a big believer in the Bible. It's got lots of stuff I'm a little suspicious of. Listen, we believe, because of exactly what Jesus told the people in that room, that you'll be my witnesses. And you are witnesses to this event 
that'll be enough to take this message to every nation in the world. We're going to start right here in Jerusalem. And they documented these events. And they were copied and they were gathered and they were distributed. And it's why we're here today. And it's why we say that the foundation of the Christian faith is an event. The foundation of the Christian faith is not faith. The foundation of our faith is not even a book. It's an extraordinary event with profound implications. The extraordinary event with profound implications for your life, for your fears, for your hopes, for your dreams, for your eternity. And Peter, who peered into that tomb, Peter, who tracked along with Jesus from the day that Jesus invited him to take him fishing. Uh, this is amazing. Peter, who believed and then unbelieved and then denied that he'd ever believed and then he re-believed. So let me go over that again. He believed and then he was, Jesus was arrested, so he unbelieved and he ran and he's confronted by a middle school girl and they're pretty intimidating and he's like, I've never believed. And then after the resurrection, he re-believed. And the Apostle Paul, who tradition tells us was crucified in Nero's, room, Nero's Rome, uh, maybe it was Nero's room, I don't know, but I know it was his Rome, because of his faith in Christ, that very same Peter, before he was executed, sat down with Mark and he gave his account of Jesus' life. At some point, they sat down with a scribe and they dictated two letters that survived antiquity and they're part of our New Testament. In one of those letters, the Apostle Peter, he's looking back at his life and the events of his time with Jesus. And here's what he said to some, a, a group of first century Christians. He wrote, this is a real letter written to real people in the first century. And here's what it, he says to them. And I believe that this is preserved because he's saying this to you and to me too. Here's what he says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He starts off with saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right off at the very beginning, he believed that God was Jesus' Father. He says this, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth or new life into a living hope. And the word hope here is not a verb, like, like he's not saying, I hope so. It's a noun. He's saying, because of what Jesus has done, we have, I have, you can have hope. But based on what, Peter? Well, the next word tells us, he says, through, through what? In other words, because of, in other words, Peter, what tangible evidence do you have? What are you hanging this hope on? Why can you write such things like this with so much confidence? You know, because you're, you're not a young man anymore. You're, you've lived some life, and, and, you know, and every single day of your life now you, is a risk. You're risking your life. Eventually, you're going to go to Rome. So how, where does your confidence come from? He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you were to ask Peter, Peter, what's the foundation of your faith? He would not say, the parables that Jesus taught, they were great teachings, the parable of the prodigal son and the parable of this or that. And the it would not say parable of anything. He wouldn't say the miracles that he performed because, man, that was a show. We drew big crowds with that. He would say, my faith in Jesus was resurrected when I saw my resurrected friend. And he uses, he, he, he says this new life, he uses an interesting word here. He says, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This is an important word. Because who gets an inheritance? Typically, who gets an inheritance? Children. Children get an inheritance. And in this moment, the Apostle Peter reminds us, and reminds his audience, that there's a relational factor. That this isn't just history. These are not just events, but that by dying on the cross for our sin, that Jesus paved the way for us to have a relationship with God that could be described and, and compared to the relationship between a perfect father 
and an imperfect son or daughter. What comes next is perhaps the most extraordinary of all. Here's what he says in verse 4. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, if you haven't been paying attention, you've got, you got to pay attention now, okay? Because we're, we're just going to wrap this thing up. Peter, the apostle Peter, believed in heaven. But the apostle Peter did not believe in heaven because of something that he was told as a child. In fact, it's highly unlikely that Peter was told anything about heaven when he was growing up because there's virtually nothing in the Jewish scriptures about heaven. In fact, there's so little in the Jewish scriptures about heaven that about half the Jewish leaders didn't even believe there was a heaven. They believed that once you died, that was it. You had lived for the pleasure of God, and then when your life ended, your life ended. So Peter did not grow up believing in heaven, and he didn't come to the place where he believed in heaven because of something he was taught. Peter believed in heaven because of something he saw as an adult, a resurrected Jesus who spoke often about heaven. He goes on, he says this in verse 6. In all this, remember he's writing to first century Christians. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief, yeah, most likely, and all kinds of trials. And we think we have trials, and that's not to diminish our trials, but think of this in terms of first century Christians. This is extraordinary. Peter did not doubt God's love. Peter did not doubt God's existence because of pain and suffering in the world. And I'll tell you why. Because he saw Jesus suffer, and he saw Jesus die, and then he had coffee and breakfast with Jesus on the beach. Peter's faith, this is so important, Peter's faith was not tethered to an imaginary God who does not let bad things happen to good people. That wasn't his God. If you've lost faith in God because of the evil in the world or you've lost faith in God because of the pain and suffering in the world or your pain and suffering, I just want you to reconsider. Because the men and women who bring us the story of Jesus from the New Testament saw pain, saw suffering that we cannot even imagine. Many of them experienced pain and suffering that we cannot even imagine, and yet they believed. And here's why. Because Peter and his friends, Peter and the other men and women who followed Jesus, Peter saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person he'd ever known. And they believed anyway. Because their faith was not in an imaginary God that never allows bad things to happen to good people. Their faith was in the God introduced to them by Jesus, the God who invites you, invites us to relate to him as Heavenly Father. It wasn't necessarily the teaching of Jesus, it was the resurrection of Jesus that completely reframed all of Peter's life and so many of those followers of Jesus. So the invitation on Easter for me and the invitation of Easter for you is to allow the resurrection of Jesus to reframe our lives as well. It reframed, reframed Peter's life in this way. When Peter was uh, confronted with Judas and, his hench and, the, and the henchmen from the temple in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter ran for his life. But after the resurrection, Peter ran toward danger in order to give his life away. So in this letter, he pivots from the resurrection to the significance of Jesus' crucifixion, and he says something that's relevant for all of us. 
It's relevant for every single person in this room and every single person who's breathing oxygen on this planet. It's relevant because this was the point of the whole interchange, the relationship between Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. And here's what he says. This is in verse 18, 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1. He says, for you know, because these are Christians now, these are people that, who have been taught because he's taught them. He says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. That is, that you were bought out of sin. He's about with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So he takes us back to that very first day when Jesus stepped onto the banks of the Jordan River as an adult. And John the baptizer, not knowing what the future held, pointed and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And nobody really understood what that meant. But Peter, looking back now after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, says, now we understand. Now we understand that God sent a perfect lamb, not just to cover and atone for our sin, as has been our tradition in our Jewish faith growing up, but to pay for our sin and listen, and to remove our sin so that the path would be open for us to have a relationship with God, our creator, as Jesus invited us to call him our father. The point of all this is simply this, that we know that God is for us because Jesus died for us not because things always work out for us. That's the power of the resurrection. That beyond everything they'd experienced, everything they saw, these men and women emerged with extraordinary faith in God and in Jesus because of the resurrection. That's why we say that the foundation of the Christian faith is an event. It's an extraordinary event with profound implications for our lives. It's how we know, it's how Peter knew with certainty. It's how we know with confidence that God is and that God is personal. I love the fact that the God that we serve is a God who is personal. It's how we know that suffering is not evidence of God's absence. Let's slow down, take a beat there. Suffering is not evidence of God's absence. Because men and women who saw extraordinary suffering, men and women who experienced extraordinary suffering, maintained faith anyway. Because the foundation of their faith was not a perfect world where bad things never happened to good people the foundation of their faith was a resurrected Savior. It's how we know that heaven is real. Not because we're told that as children, not because you like the idea of this, you know, whatever image we have of that, not because somebody's trying to make you feel better, not simply something that pastors say at funerals so the loved ones will feel like one day they'll be reconnected. It's bigger than that. We know heaven's real because Jesus taught there's a heaven and Jesus conquered death. And perhaps, perhaps the most extraordinary thing of all to me is that the resurrection of Jesus frees us. It frees us to accept the Jesus' interpretation of his own life, that the resurrection confirms everything that Jesus taught. And one of the things that just bothered religious leaders more than anything is that Jesus would look at sick people who came to get well, and sometimes instead of healing them physically, initially he would say, your sin is forgiven. Your sin is forgiven. And they would think, only God can forgive sin. And he would smile and say, yeah, you're right, and only God can do this. Stand up and walk. Now you can see, you can go home. Now you are healed. But the point of the crucifixion of Jesus isn't simply heaven. It's that we 
know that we have been forgiven and that we have a right standing with God because Jesus forgave our sin and punctuated his power and punctuated his authority to forgive sin by rising from the dead. You know what that means? It means that forgiveness is available. Forgiveness is available to you and to me. And it means that you are loved by God. And now you're free to love and to forgive. To love as he loved, to forgive as he forgave. Jesus called this the mark of the covenant. Jesus said it is loving people who are difficult to love. I don't know if you have any of those people in your life. You want to honor the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Love the people in your life who are difficult to love. Jesus said to the men who crucified him, or he said in the, their presence, he said to his father, in their presence, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Let's love people who are nothing like us. Loving people who will never love you back. It means that you've stepped into this amazing new kind of relationship with God. This relationship between God and humanity. And I think it's evidence that You've entered the kingdom that is not of this world. You've entered the kingdom that makes no sense to this world. You've entered the kingdom that's the upside-down kingdom of God that would ultimately circle the globe and impact every single civilization for the last 2,000 years. It's evidence that we've stepped into the kingdom that has a king who chose to give his life for his subjects, the king who's worthy of our devotion, the king who is worthy of his name.